welcome to the Youth Development Professionals Guidebook. I'm your host, Michael Garcia. And I'm your co-host, Al Ferreira. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another amazing episode. We have a super special treat today. Um, I have a friend from way back when we were in high school together, Summer Gathercole. How are you doing, Summer? I'm good. How are you? It's good to be with you today. Yeah, so we're just talking how we haven't seen each other since 1990. And then um, (laughs) from there, yeah, right. So we're, you know, we're both only 29. So that works. And uh, so Summer, welcome to the group. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Yeah, thank you. Um, And it's really good to reconnect with you after, you know, only just a few years. Um, But uh, so a little bit about my background. Uh, When I graduated from college, I um, was an accountant. I worked at a um, public accounting firm as a CPA and was certain that I was going to be a CEO of my own Fortune 500 company. And uh, at the time, I moved to Washington, D.C. And quite frankly, it was the first time I lived in an urban environment where there was a lot of poverty and homelessness that I was exposed to on a regular basis. So I started volunteering at a homeless shelter and I went every Monday night and I absolutely loved it. I worked with the residents to help them prepare their resumes, look for jobs, get ready for interviews, um, all of that. Uh, and after about seven or eight months or so, the um, staff at the shelter approached me and asked if I would be interested in working there, which I hadn't expected because I was happy, well, as happy as you can be in an accounting firm, not that it's like fascinating work, um, but I had a good team of people that I worked with. And that kind of was my foray into um, just doing a lot of direct service, working with people who needed help and assistance. Um, from there, I, I started a nonprofit uh, that I ran for a couple of years. And then I was recruited to run the DC Department of Employment um, under Mayor Fenty back in 2007. And then I did the typical DC thing, which was leave government, go into consulting. Uh, During that time, I left Washington DC and I moved to Colorado and um, started getting involved with the state government in Colorado on a couple of different consulting projects and really started getting some um, great exposure to the behavioral health world and the needs that we are facing in behavioral health. And it became something that um, I was really passionate about and um, was offered uh, recently, I guess a little over a year and a half ago, but amazing once in a lifetime opportunity. And that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Great. And so tell us, there's this task force that you were working with since 2019. Can you bring us just a snapshot of pre-task force? What, What was the conversations like with the governor and then how you developed that into your plan? Sure. So our governor Polis uh, took office in early 2019. And one of the things I think he learned very quickly is that there is a huge need um, for behavioral health uh, in Colorado. So we have, at that time, we had about three Coloradans a day who died by suicide. Uh, Suicide is the number two leading cause of youth uh, in Colorado. We have about um, an estimated 90,000 people who go without um, drug treatment services, mostly due to stigma. Um, And we just have this increasing demand and we're not able to keep up with it. So Governor Polis, um, early on in his administration said, you know, I want to I want to know what it's going to take to have a behavioral health system that works for all Coloradans. Right now we have a system that works for some, it doesn't work for all, what's it going to take? And so he um, 
developed or put together this behavioral health task force and really charged them with saying like, just tell me what it's gonna take. There were no guardrails. Um, there was nothing where he said, stay within these parameters. He just said, go and, and make it happen. So we recruited across Colorado. We had almost 500 people apply to be on the task force, um, ended up with slightly over 100. And the way that it was structured is that we had three subcommittees. So we had a um, children's subcommittee that really looked at um, folks between the ages of zero and 26 to really identify the unique and distinct needs of children and youth and how they can be met within the behavioral health system. We had a competency subcommittee, which really looked at uh, if people are in jail because their competency is in question, how do we make sure that they're not languishing in jail? How do we make sure that they get an evaluation and access to services quickly? Um, and then our third subcommittee was around uh, a safety net. And how do we make sure that regardless of where you live and what your situation is and what your income is in Colorado, that you have access to services? Um, and those three subcommittees worked for a full year, meeting several times a month for several hours at a time, uh, and put forth recommendations to the task force in, in um, August of 2020. So originally our goal had been June of 2020, but because of COVID, everything got delayed a bit, understandably. And ultimately, the task force had to review almost 150 recommendations um, that were put forth by the subcommittee. Uh, or subcommittees and prioritize those recommendations, developed a um, blueprint or plan to say, here's what needs to happen in order for us to overhaul our behavioral health system in Colorado and have one that works for everybody. I think, um, as I said, Governor Polis really put forth no guardrails and that is still true. And I would say, of course, one of the questions we get asked most often is, well, what happens now because of COVID? Um, and, you know, certainly our state, like many others, is facing a budget crisis because of COVID and the resources that we've needed to direct there. Uh, and I think we're very lucky that Governor Polis has said behavioral health is still a priority. That commitment is still there. It might take a little bit longer than we had anticipated. We, we might need to think a little bit creatively about um, identifying resources um, to make sure that we can implement all the recommendations but we are really fortunate that that commitment is still there from the governor, from the legislature, and from all of the different stakeholders who, are, who have been involved so far. It, it, it's amazing, Summer, because uh, as I read through that blueprint for reform that uh, you guys put out uh, in September of this year, uh, what occurred to me was that you guys were creating a, a behavioral health roadmap for the entire state in the midst of a potential behavioral health pandemic on top of the regular healthcare pandemic. Um, what were some of the things that emerged in this that may have been unexpected or maybe really put a spotlight on uh, behavioral health issues? That's a great question. Um, and we were, you know, experiencing this pandemic as we we're putting this long-term plan together. Um, I will say on a personal level, one of the challenges for me was to stay focused on the long goal, you know, to say like, we are working on this long-term plan for reform in, in Colorado. Um, and I could not and wouldn't allow myself to get kind of 
for lack of a better phrase, sucked into the day-to-day -day operations during the COVID response um, because I knew I had to focus on the long goal. And it was hard, right? Because everybody else was really engaged in the day-to-day -day, uh, and I knew that there was need there, but I also knew we would never reach the long goal if, we, um, if I didn't stay focused on that. Uh, on the broader level, I will say one of the things that Governor Polis asked us to do this past spring was to form a COVID-19 special assignment committee to really look at the short-term and long-term impacts um, of COVID on behavioral health in Colorado, and also to develop recommendations on how do we be better prepared for future pandemics or, or crises. Um, what I would say came out of that is that while we all suspect that the need for behavioral health services is, is growing and it will continue to grow because of COVID, we don't have immediate access to data that we can point to and say, yep, we're definitely in you know, even more of a crisis than we were before. We have some preliminary data coming in, so we know that there's been a huge surge in our crisis hotline. Um, we've heard a lot of anecdotal stories from providers who are saying that um, they are seeing an increase in requests for services. We did surveys with consumers and people with lived experience and definitely heard that there's heightened anxiety there. Um, but in terms of like just a formal you know, where, what's that data? We don't have access to the timely data. So, and until we do, it's going to be really hard for us to say, here's the direct impact of COVID on behavioral health in Colorado. So, uh, you know, as you describe all that, it, it must take a tremendous amount of concentration on your part to, you know, uh, what you, you said, not get sucked into the day-to-day. -day. Uh, so, anecdotally, uh, is there something that you've learned about yourself within all of this that may have surprised you? Um, I think it was, I mean, it took a, a great deal of discipline. Um, and I also think it took a great deal of just um, perseverance. You know, I mean, we had this original deadline of June 30th that was then moved to the end of August that was then moved to the middle of September. Uh, and I thank the governor for being flexible in the plans given the ever-changing needs. Um, but it still was a tremendous amount of work in a really short period of time. I mean, a lot of the things that we talked about within the task force and the subcommittees are behavioral health recommendations that have been discussed for years. Like we have dozens of reports on the state of Colorado should do this, state agencies should do this, providers should do this. We've never had an implementation plan before, um, or we've never had the political will to, to move forward. Um, and when everything shifted towards focusing on COVID, um, there were essentially you know, two staff who were focused on behavioral health reform and trying to get everybody on the task force and the subcommittees who were not on the front lines of COVID um, to stay focused and engaged with us. And that was, that was a challenge, right? So I think the, the fact that we were able to stay as focused as we were and to um, come out on the other end with a plan to say, this is phase one, this is what we're gonna do in phase two and phase three uh, is pretty remarkable. And, the, and we've already started implementation. Um, that's probably the question I get asked most often these days is when does implementation begin? And it's already begun. So we've already surpassed all those dozens of reports of um, recommendations over the years because now we're making it happen, which is, again, remarkable and just a credit to the political will that we have to, to really make sure we change our system. 
aside from the political will, what's something that you're extremely proud of that, that is being implemented or, or, or is moving forward uh, maybe at a faster pace than you anticipated? Sure. So one of the big recommendations coming out of the task force was the um, was to establish a behavioral health administration, which is essentially a new entity that will oversee all of behavioral health in Colorado. So we found that um, we did an analysis. Colorado spends about $1.4 billion in behavioral health at the state level. Um, and that crosses at least 10 different state agencies and 75 different programs. So we are working really inefficiently. You know, we're not spending our dollars efficiently. We're not coordinating all of our efforts. Um, it puts a huge burden on the provider. And more than anything else, it's a burden for consumers because right now it's up to them to say, um, okay, I have to find the provider that has the funding stream that meets my needs, you know, and they're knocking on all these 75 different doors until they can get there. Um, now we are going to um, be more efficient and be more coordinated, which will provide the infrastructure for the, for the consumer um, and make it easier for them. And they won't feel that as much as they will some of the other implementation um, recommendations to come. But I think that is something that, again, has been discussed for years and um, it wasn't necessarily a new idea. We definitely got into the details more than um, ever before. And we are already in the process of hiring a firm to come in and help us um, consolidate all those programs and funding. So, I mean, I think within like two weeks of the blueprint coming out, we had an RFP out the door saying, okay, we know that we need a firm with expertise to come in and help us do that. Wow, what a what a huge task that's coming up on you. And it's, it, it's exciting to hear all these, these changes change. As we've talked about on this podcast quite a few times, change is good in, and it's important to keep updated. So everybody hang out with us. Just uh, we have a commercial, quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Summer and Al. Thanks. If you're interested in having your voice heard on this podcast, go to youthdevelopmentpro.com and send us an email. Welcome back. We're here with uh, Summer Gathercall, who has been talking to us about the implementation of uh, a huge coordinated effort in the state of Colorado uh, about behavioral health. She talked a little bit in the first uh, portion about uh, uh, one of the pieces uh, of putting uh, forward uh, kind of an administrative uh, plan statewide. And, and I know that the second piece to that is that there's going to be implemented care coordination. And, and you're looking at, you know, millions of folks uh, throughout the state, I you know I, I noticed earlier that there's there was 95,000 untreated um, uh, addiction folks because because they refused to come forward because of the stigma about addiction. So I think about that number, 95,000. Then I think about the entire state of Colorado. Um, and, and your governor's talked about putting people first and, and creating less red tape. So, so as you implement this administrative plan uh, and, and the care coordination, uh, how is it going to be easier to do business with for somebody who has that stigma? Is, you know, uh, has there been some thought into those, those parts? There has. That's been. A, that's a great question. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about and thinking through care coordination, um, because right now, if you are in need of drug treatment, um, you might 
call a couple places uh, and if you actually get someone to answer the phone more often than not they'll probably give you a list of you know 10 or 12 or 15 places that you can call on your own and see if you can get assistance um, and what we heard because we did public testimonies um, for the first year that the task force was in existence you heard from a lot of people with lived experience or their family members who said hey when i reached out to get help the very first question i heard was how are you going to pay for it? What's your form of insurance? Do you have insurance? You know, that that is not customer friendly. That is not the system that we want to have in Colorado, but that is the system that we have today. So we want to change that and kind of as the as the blueprint says, we want to put people first. So when they reach out and say, I need help, regardless of where they live, they are connected to a care coordinator. And that person works with them to say, um, so what is your need? You know, do you need drug treatment? Do you need therapy? Do you need something else? Um, let's talk through what your options are. Um, and let's find out what provider can meet your needs based on the type of insurance or the, you know, the lack of insurance that you have. Um, and let's get an appointment set up for you. And I'm gonna set that appointment up for you. And if you need me to go there with you, I will get you there. If you need me to get your transportation, I will get you there. Essentially, you're gonna have some someone on every leg of the journey with you. Um, and, and that includes not just getting your foot in the door, but um, transitioning care. So if you are in the hospital and you're leaving the hospital and you're gonna go into intensive outpatient treatment, um, your paperwork follows you. Because right now, nothing is coordinated. So if you leave the hospital and you go to a new provider, you essentially have to start all over again. And what we heard is that is really re-traumatizing for a lot of people to have to start from the very beginning to tell their story. Um, so that's kind of the level of care coordination that we're talking about in terms of behavioral health. But then we're also taking it a step further to talk about whole person care. So when the care coordinator sits down and says, do you need therapy? Do you need drug treatment? You know, let's talk about the services that are available. They also say, do you need housing? Do you need employment? Do you need training? Do you need childcare? Do you need transportation? So we are really addressing the whole person. We're thinking about the social determinants of health um, and trying to bridge all those resources together. And as far as we know, there is no other state that has um, taken on this level of care coordination. So Colorado would be kind of the front runner and we're super excited about it. It's gonna be a massive undertaking, but when it works, think about what a different or what a different experience people will have when they reach out for help. It'll be much less stigmatizing because it's gonna be so much more welcoming. You're, you're talking about systematic change and uh, you know, in, in my work over the last four decades with uh, uh, with youth, it, it, I, I talk a little bit about cultural change as well and how we impact that. Uh, one of the quotes that uh, I wrote down that uh, uh, you had said is it, it, uh, in your uh, preliminary questionnaire about the podcast was, it's okay to not be okay. And how do you, okay, making systematic change the way you guys are is one thing. How do you make a cultural impact with an entire state to say it's okay to not be okay? Where does that come into this entire plan, into this blueprint? Yeah. Again, great question. I, um, it's, it's going to take all of us, right? So it can't just be the Department of Human Services or the Office of Behavioral Health saying, it's okay not to be okay. We need to make sure that um, 
all of the state agencies that touch behavioral health or offer behavioral health services, all of our providers um, to each other that we're all saying the same thing. And to say, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to reach out and ask for help. But think about what's the best, um, the best way to do that, right? So our Department of Agriculture um, recently put out kind of a, a toolkit to um, reach the farmers in the rural areas of Colorado. And um, that's gonna be a slightly different approach than um, reaching some of the mountain towns in Colorado, right? So some of it's really thinking about how do we share that message of it's okay to not be okay, but how do we frame it in a way that those different populations are gonna hear it um, in a positive fashion. And that's one of the things we have to figure out. I mean, we have some anti-stigma campaigns. Uh, campaigns are, are hard, they are um, a heavy lift and they take a long time to make that cultural shift. So we certainly have a lot of work to do. And some of it, it too is on each of us personally. Um, you know, I, last year, it's a long story, I'll, share, I'll spare you all the details. But um, last year I was recording a number of my phone calls and it just recorded my end of the conversation. And when I was out running one day, um, for whatever reason, my, my phone picked up all those messages and just started playing those messages while I was running, which was super annoying because I like running to music. But so I got to hear myself time and time again in all these different calls. And every time somebody called me and they'd say, hey, Summer, my immediate response was like, hey, how's it going? How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Like, it was never like, it was just such a um, ingrained reaction in me that uh, now since I've listened to that, those recordings, and now in COVID, when I talk to people and I say, hey, how you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm good. How are you? I actually pause and say, no, no, no. Like, how are you really doing? Like, how are things really going for you? Because we are all so ingrained to give that just immediate reaction of like, yeah, I'm good. How are you? Um, you know, and, and I think we need to do a better job of checking in on each other just as much as we need to do a better job of saying it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, that that's great. I, I do that all the time. You know, how are you doing? Yeah, living the dream. You know, that's that's the response and, yep. you know, diving deeper into that and, and showing a little empathy is really important. So, Summer, I want to talk a little bit about process because that's how my brain works is you had uh, over 100 people on this task force that you're working with. And um, I'm sure because it's Colorado, everybody agreed with everything at the same time, right? Um, you know, but the rest of the United States sometimes have challenges working in larger groups. Talk to us a little bit about, and, and save the names, but you know, talk to us a little bit about something that came up that became a little bit of a sticking point, and how did you guys and proceed through this process, this sticking point? Sure. Um, I'll be honest with that one of our biggest sticking points um, was really around the care coordination. Uh, there's some fear that the uh, care, the, there's a couple of different fears that are involved from what I could tell or from what I heard um, or perceived and that is um, the fear that there's some care there's some communities that are already doing care coordination and they don't want to necessarily have that taken away or have that changed because we're trying to put in some more systemic care coordination there's certainly this um, fear perception of uh, the care coordination will take money away from services that are currently happening and that providers will have to do um, more with less or the same with less and that there's already funding challenges. Um, so there's definitely a lot of, of pushback around care coordination. I mean, it, it, we voted on it, uh, it passed, but it, it was the only big vote that we had that was not unanimous. Um, and for us, what that means is 
we just need to continue to have more conversations to um, make sure that we continue to hear people's concerns, to listen to them, to think about how could we do this differently so that it works for everybody. Not everyone's gonna get their way, but we're committed to doing that. I would say one of the things I'm most proud of um, from the work of the task force is how much engagement we did have. I mean, we really worked really hard to make sure that uh, everyone on a subcommittee and a task force had a chance to share their voice and opinion, whether it was in the meeting, whether it was a survey we sent out after the meeting saying, hey, now that you've had a chance to process, what do you think now? You know, what other suggestions do you want to share? Um, and we are continued to, to making that to continuing that level of engagement. Um, it's actually critical for us to be successful. Yeah. One, one of the things I like to ask uh, all our guests, Summer, is, um, and, and, you know, this blueprint is, is your roadmap that you're going to work on for the next couple of years. Uh, so uh, I'd like you to imagine Summer 18 months from now uh, and looking back on what's occurred, what would Summer 18 months from now tell Summer today about uh, something that, that you feel you've achieved, a success, uh, you know, a piece of advice? Is, is, is there something that comes to mind immediately that you would look back on from 18 months from now and, and share with yourself? Gosh, that is a great question. Um, I That's why he's here. My... That's why he's here, Summer. It's the only reason we keep him around is, you know, he's got those zinger questions and John Maxwell quotes. I'm expecting a good one today, Al. Oh, dear. <laughs> I did not. I can put it on the edge of my seat. You know, I, I think there's two things. One, I would, um, the advice I would give to myself 18 months ago would be to say, we need more we need more team members we need a little bit more resources to be able to really um, continue to do this well um, as i said there were kind of two full-time staff that were supporting this we had some outside facilitators um, we had other staff who helped out here and there um, but it's a major undertaking for that level of systemic reform um, and so, you know, I think we could have been even more effective and efficient if we'd had a little bit more resources. Um, but the other thing I would say to myself is, you're gonna do this, like you're gonna do this and people are gonna be really proud of being part of this and, and completing this work. Um, so don't give up even when it's frustrating. And I, you know, obviously I never did, but um, you know, there were definitely tiresome moments and frustrating moments. Um, but there are also some really amazing things that we that we were able to accomplish. Um, and from that, I'm super proud to, to have been part of it, along with everyone else who is part of the team. And when I say team, I mean the task force and the subcommittees. I mean, it was definitely a group effort. So just to, to, to fulfill what you just said and, and meet uh, uh, Michael's expectation of a John Maxwell quote, uh, John talks about the law of the picture, the big picture, uh, you know, and how it takes uh, leadership uh, to not only to raise a leader, but the potential of an organization depends on the growth of its leadership. Obviously, your governor set out this massive vision for behavioral health in the state. Uh, so, are, are, are there, where do you grow from here within your organization? What, what capacity is there uh, in, 
your own leadership path as you move through the, um, uh, this blueprint for reform? Gosh, I don't know how to answer that on a personal level. I mean, I think at the organizational level, now that we've moved from, and I would say not just for the Department of Human Services where I'm housed, but for all of the state agencies um, and all the stakeholders involved, you know, we're making this shift from the theoretical and conceptual of like, hey, this all would be great in the idealistic world for us to be able to do, to very quickly pivoting to the oh my gosh, we're going to make this happen. And this is practical and it's real. And now we've got to start talking about all the details. Um, and so we're seeing, uh, I think, a, a wave and level of resources that maybe we hadn't seen before um, because now we now it is real, right? It is kind of like, okay, you know, the rubber hits the road and we're going to make this happen and let's put whatever resources we need forward within reason, of course, um, but there's, there's definitely a commitment, I would say, not just from my agency, but from all the agencies and the governor's office um, to, to make this happen. One of the uh, uh, books I just finished reading uh, of John Maxwell is called Leadership, uh, which uh, basically talks about the 11 shifts that a leader has to make in order to really help uh, focus and change within a world that, that is constantly changing. You know, it's just, uh, uh, everyone talks about the new normal. I keep saying the new normal is, uh, there is no normal. It changes every single day right now, or it has. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, again, is there something that, that you're, uh, discovering about yourself that, uh, you weren't aware of prior to, um, not only the pandemic, but uh, this entire reform that you're helping shepherd. That is a hard question. Um, probably mostly because I don't think of it as a personal thing. I think it's more of a, we have to do this for Coloradans. And so I don't, I don't know. I'm really, honestly, I'm really struggling with like the personal reflection, which also might sound bad too. <laughs> same time but you should read um, some of your work there summer and and you know see those research <laughs> <laughs> what, what um yeah, go ahead. I, I, I was going to say, no, no, it was, it, it's really more of a statement. I mean, what it's, what's clear to me is that, uh, uh, you know, the heart of a servant leader is somebody who just continuously puts forth for the end result of the folks that, uh, that they're serving. Uh, so, uh, you know, it seems like, um, you know, one of the things that I found across a lot of the folks that we've interviewed is that they are servant leaders. And sometimes that humility is hard to talk about themselves and personalize that. So, uh, and, and I'm just hearing that it, as you talk about this entire part, and I'm uh, just curious, uh, genuinely curious, you know, you know uh, what you're gaining from the entire aspect. I mean, you, you, uh, you know, uh, I know folks aren't seeing your, your, your face in this, but, uh, you, you have a smile of, of like, I'm, I look at what I'm accomplishing or look at what we are accomplishing and moving forward. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, that's what I'm drawing on. I'm trying to draw out a little bit more of that, uh, servant leader capacity that, uh, you innately, uh, display. Ah, thank you. Okay, so um, 
I, you know, I referenced the, uh, the testimonies that we heard over the course of a year, um, again, mostly from people with lived experience um, and a lot of family members and a lot of parents who came in and talked about um, the struggles that their children endured. Um, you know, at the end of February, we held a public testimony session in a mountain town. And, um, you know, at this point I had probably moderated, I don't know, at least a dozen um, of these public testimonies. And this was the first one that we had that as I was moderating, I had to, I had to be the one to stop and say, we need to take a break because I couldn't hold myself together. And we had just heard this heartbreaking story from a mom who talked about all the ways that she had tried to get her um, 12 year old daughter help. And then calmly at the end of the public testimony said, um, and she wasn't able to get help and she died by suicide. And just, it, I, I can't even express the, the emotion, um, you know, that, uh, that I felt at that time, although you might be able to hear it in my voice, I still get really emotional when I think about it. Um, and that's why this work is so important. I mean, there's too many heartbreaking stories out there. And it, it really honestly got to a point um, right before COVID kind of blew up that um, I was you know, almost sobbing every day on my way to work, not because I didn't want to go to work, but because I kept repeating these stories in my head. And it's for those people that, that we have to do this work, that we have to continue this fight, that we have to be successful. I mean, in a, in a state like Colorado with the resources that we have, there's no reason why we should be losing three people a day to suicide. There's no reason why we should have 95,000 people who don't seek out treatment um, because of stigma. You know, we, we have to do better. And that's what drives me, like all of those personal stories and the people that I've met along the way who have been brave enough to say, let me tell you what happened to me. And that's, you know, and let me tell you why we need to change the system. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. Yeah, that's just, thank you for sharing that story. That was just, that was great. Um, so we're we're at our end. We have, we have a next commercial summer. We're going to put your website you submitted to us in the information, but um, any last thing you want to tell us uh, before we head off, anything we need to know about the Colorado Department of Human Services? Uh, you know, the only last thing I'll share is that um, we have done great work, but we know we don't have all the answers. So if you are out there and you have ideas or suggestions, um, or you've heard what other states are doing that work is working really well, um, Michael, you can share my information as well, and people can feel free to reach out to me. Um, we don't want to recreate the wheel if we know that there's something out there that's already working well. And just Perfect. thank you for having me today, and, and thanks for the time. Yeah, no, definitely. And we'll hopefully get other states to start reaching out to you and say, what are you doing there? And how can we how can we take that and bring it to where we are? So um, we'll be right back after this commercial break. Thanks so much to our sponsors, Expert Online Training. Al, you've used Expert Online Training. Tell us about it. I have. I've been a past user and, and, and a big fan of expert online training. Uh, the different topics and presenters that they have really are worthwhile in tailoring training to your specific camp teams in so many different ways. So if you're interested in expert online training, go to expertonlinetraining.com and check them out. You know, the only thing I can say, Al, is wow. That was, that was just a great, great conversation with Summer. I, I learned so much and, and got inspired about 
everything that she's talking about. Uh, Al, what'd you learn today? It really takes a great deal uh, of concentrated effort to be able to stay focused, to accomplish something like that while there's a pandemic going on. What a, uh, an amazing person. And I, I, I'm brought to uh, this great John Maxwell uh, quote, <laughs> uh, big picture thinkers broaden their outlook by striving to learn from every experience. They don't rest on their successes, they learn from them. And it, it's clear that uh, uh, Summer is not resting on her laurels at all uh, of accomplishing the task of creating the, the, the roadmap, this, this reform plan, but immediately going into, and, uh, you know, she brightened up when she started talking, oh, and we're already in the implementation phase. It's not even been a month, you know? Uh, so she was so excited about that. And, and, and just, you know, how this impacts uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, adults, but youth. I mean, her story about that 12 year old kid, uh, you know, it, it just, um, it, it, it's heartbreaking. And at the same, t at the same time, it's inspiring that somebody's doing something about it. Yeah, Al, I, I agree hundred percent. One of my huge takeaways was what Summer said is, is focus on the long goal, you know, and, and not address the now. And I think, you know, we'll bring it back to our world, right. As youth development professionals, we, we play in summer camp, you know, we're, we're thinking about next season, but who's really thinking about summer 2022 already, right? Because you, you need to figure out what you're doing right now in 2021. I think it's important to have that long range thought, you know, summer's our first guest on the past 27 episodes that isn't directly working with youth. But I want everybody to kind of really take a, a introspective look about how relevant the information she was talking about is for our work in the youth development field. Uh, the story of impact, how many do we have, right? How many do you and I have and how many do our listeners have right now? And then how to manage groups and, you know, deal with roadblocks, but then also celebrate successes and, and everything that, that was happening in, in the story that she was telling us. I, I, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the pull quote that I'm going to remember uh, to remind everyone uh, from here is, uh, it's okay to not be okay. Took the words right out of my mouth. That's how I was going to end it up today. So that's perfect time to end it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks to Summer. Al, thanks again for, for coming out and, and being my partner in crime with this. Uh, need anything? Reach out to us. Uh, if you like the episode, give it a five star. Uh, share it. Tell your friends. Let everybody know what we're doing here. And uh, it, remember, it's okay to not be okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.